Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hi, I'm Alex Grodnick. You're listening to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Today we're talking real estate venture capital. What does that mean? Stay with us to find out. Also, Brendan Wallace, my guest today, has a pretty interesting background and story that I don't think you're going to want to miss. Quickly, the courses at Wall Street Oasis that I talk about every week that keep this podcast going really are incredible. They're the most comprehensive thing out there with thousands of crowdsourced questions and case studies, interview prep, and modeling training. Whether it's banking, private equity, hedge funds, or consulting, check them out. I'm sure they will help you. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Okay, Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming. I've really. never done a podcast in a in a box like this. Yeah, we we've grown so quickly that there's literally very little quiet space in this office. So we've literally been building these boxes internally so people can take calls in a quiet environment. Well, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. This will be our best audio podcast yet. <laughs> Hopefully the noise level stays low. Yeah. So let's just jump into it. You have a venture capital fund now, but you started off in banking at Goldman, working for Blackstone. So let's just kind of, you know, get to the through the facts of your career here. Sure. Um, so my background is kind of a hybrid between real estate and technology. So I, I started my career right out of Princeton. I, I loved the real estate industry. So I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do after school. And banking was what everyone out of Princeton seemed to do. Uh, so I did real estate banking. So I was in real estate banking 0405 at Goldman. And then I went into CMBS. So this was during the, the kind of crazy times around commercial mortgage origination. Yeah, the, the lead up. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the times when it was fun. Um, I worked in CMBS at Goldman for a bit. And then I went to Blackstone and I was in real estate private equity at Blackstone. And I just happened to overlap with a boon to the business where they executed the EOP deal, the equity office properties buyout, and the Hilton Hotels buyout. So it's kind of a really cool time to be in the real estate industry because you got to see the run-up to the peak, and then in 08, the world basically ended in the real estate industry. And so that kind of cataclysmic implosion of the real estate industry was something that, that I think is important to see early in your career. And so in 2008, I went to business school at Stanford. It seemed, frankly, like a good time to get out of the real estate industry. So uh, I was at Stanford. And actually, at Stanford, it was kind of interesting because while, it, while I was there in my first year, you know, we were reading the headlines about Lehman Brothers collapsing and all of this carnage on, on Wall Street. 
So um, I caught the tech bug, um, probably both out of just organic interest in starting my own company, being in that technology venture capital ecosystem of Stanford, and also, you know, the real estate markets didn't look amazing at that time. And so me and another classmate, we launched a company in between our first and our second years of business school. It was a data and analytics company called Identified, totally outside of real estate, obviously. And we were helping companies recruit blue-collar, semi-skilled workers and using social media analytics to help them do that. Um, so in the early days, you know, Facebook advertising and Facebook apps, we were really one of the first platforms to allow recruiting to occur on Facebook. Uh, we raised about $35 million over the course of a few years did three rounds of financing, grew the team pretty dramatically, and then Workday, which is a big public enterprise SaaS company, they acquired us in 2014, and we became their recruiting product. So I now, kind of relatively early in my career, had had this experience in the real estate industry, and now experience in technology, um, and being an entrepreneur and successfully selling my company. And I was actively angel investing. I had uh, helped start another company called Cabify, which is um, the largest ride-sharing service now in Latin America. It's kind of like Uber in Latin America. Uber of Latin America, okay. Yes, yeah, so that, was, that was an exciting one as well. And I was doing a lot of angel investing, and I just always had this organic, kind of intrinsic interest in real estate. Like, I love real estate. So despite all this time working in tech, I, I was always gravitating towards real estate. I was doing a lot of early stage real estate technology, venture investing and angel investing. And I think the reason is that I love thinking about how space, like physical space and the constraints of space condition all human activity, right? It's kind of where we live, where we work, where we move, uh, where, where we produce. And I saw technology colliding with real estate in pretty powerful and potent ways. And I was fortunate early in my career to have worked in real estate and now also worked in tech. And I saw that as giving me an edge um, because that's actually pretty rare. You don't meet a lot of entrepreneurs or a lot of venture capitalists who start their careers in real estate. So around that time, I met up with Brad Grywe, my co-founder. And his background is pretty analogous to mine. He was Harvard undergrad, UBS real estate investment banking, then he worked at Tishman Spire in real estate, and then he worked at Starwood in real estate private equity. And then he became an entrepreneur, but actually in the real estate space. So he started a company called Invitation Homes, which was this really cool company that Blackstone the Seed funded, and they programmatically acquired single-family homes during the bottom of the housing crisis using technology. So literally buying thousands and thousands of homes a month, literally at auctions all across the country, and they right. built a tech architecture to be able to run that process. So that was really exciting to me because Brad was also on the front lines of this collision between real estate and technology. And the two of us hatched up the idea for Fifth Wall. This was kind of early 2016. So the reason I think we were so drawn to it was, one, real estate's huge. So it's the largest industry in the U.S. It's 13% of the U.S. economy. It's the largest asset class. It's the largest lending category. And yet, I think anyone who's ever interacted with real estate knows it's an under-technologized space, right? So if you walk into a building, it doesn't feel or look that different than how it did probably two decades ago. 
technology has just not touched the real estate industry. And yet we saw that changing. We saw owners and big institutional REITs and private equity funds starting to think about technology as being increasingly core to how they operate their assets. Um, and that was really interesting to us because that's exactly what you look for. And yet, at the same time, we couldn't find any focused venture capital funds looking at real estate technology. And that was also odd because I mean, it has all the heuristics you'd look for for a great you know, investable venture capital space, meaning big industry, early in the adoption of technology, and we couldn't really find any competition. So we wondered why that was. And I think the conclusion we came to is, is two reasons. One is what I was just referring to, sociological. Like there is just a gap between people that work in real estate and people that work in tech. And they just oftentimes don't overlap. The second reason is that real estate tech has a weird risk profile, meaning because the industry has been so late to adopt technology, what constitutes real, powerful, hugely impactful in innovation is oftentimes quite simple. <laughs> it's, you know, we... Uh, open a lock with a phone, right? Like keyless entry. Or we take your uh, leasing management logs and put them in the cloud. It's, it's pretty technically simple technology. Mm -hmm. So you don't face huge technical risk. But what you do face is massive distribution and go-to-market risk. Meaning if you have great technology, that's one thing. But if you can't sell it to a major institutional real estate owner, you're just unlikely to be successful. So... That was where the core thesis behind Fifth Wall came out of. It was a derivative of that, re that, that recognition on our part. So we said, what if we could raise a fund, a venture capital fund, which, by the way, neither of us had actually done ever. Um, we had never been in the venture capital industry. We said, what if we could raise a venture capital from, fund from the largest buyers of real estate technology, the, the kingmakers themselves? then we'd be able to massively de-risk the go-to-market and distribution right. of real estate tech. So that's basically what we did over the course of early 2016. That's um, so cool. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really interesting process because obviously I had raised capital for you know, many startups before. I'd never raised the fund previously. Mm -hmm. And obviously the dollars were a lot larger. We were, you know, initially we set out to raise $150 million and we ended up closing on $212 million. Um, but the weirdest thing about it, and probably the most interesting and challenging, was going into a, a real estate owner, a REIT, and saying, I want you to invest in a venture capital fund that you're not going to control, that's third party. Here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you access and insight and perspective on how technology is changing your business. And I'm going to need capital from you. And I'm going to need a commitment on your side that you're going to engage with me. You're going to, we're going to be able to build together this dynamic, interactive, high-touch relationship where I help you pick the best technologies that are going to improve your business, and then we'll invest in them. Um, that was totally novel, and I think no one had ever done that. Um, and it worked. <laughs> um, so we initially got CBRE, the largest commercial brokerage, to come in then Prologis, the largest industrial REIT, then Lennar, the largest home builder, then Heinz, the largest office developer, then Equity Residential, the largest multifamily owner, Host Hotels, largest hotel owner, Lowe's Home Improvement, a number of just large strategics came in. And then 
the rest of the capital, kind of once we had that strategic capital, the rest was all endowments, pensions, fund of funds. So really in the span of six months, we were kind of off and running with a $212 million fund. So it was incredibly exciting. I mean, that's an incredible achievement. You said raising capital for a business was very different from raising capital for a fund. What were the similarities? What were the differences? Um, I'd say the, the biggest difference is when you're looking at a business, there's something to underwrite, right? You can evaluate the company, you can evaluate its growth, you can evaluate its team. In the case of a fund, you're providing capital and it's sight unseen, right? You don't know what the companies that that fund is going to invest in will be in the future. So you're really just underwriting two things. You're underwriting a thesis and a strategy and an approach, and then you're underwriting people. Mm -hmm. um, similar to a startup. It's similar to a startup at the very at the early very stages. Yeah. Pre-product um, pre kind of thing. And so that was, that's challenging. That was, um, you know, from, from a standing start to convince people that we were the right team to go do this. It required a lot of work. It required a lot, you know, getting a lot of no's, um, learning from those no's. And I'd say I learned a lot about just deal management, right? Because a lot of uh, limited partners in venture funds, they take a while to build a relationship with you. You can't put tight, you know, financing timelines and arbitrary deadlines and these kind of obvious mechanisms that people use in the venture capital world to raise capital quickly, it just doesn't work when you're raising capital based on relationships. Um, and obviously, the, the amounts are larger. It's you know far dearer to commit $20 million to a venture capital fund that you may not see for five to 10 years versus investing in a startup where, granted, you might not get liquidity for a while, but the feedback loop is, you know, hypothetically faster. Sure. Well, that makes sense. So I want to go back into back in time a little bit here. So you went to business school, 08. What were you thinking that you were going to do? Was it go just level up and go higher into real estate? Or did you have this tech bug before school? So I didn't really know, to be honest. Um, there were things I, I love about finance. Um, I love financial engineering. I love thinking about risk reward. Um, I love like being very analytical around a particular business or business model. Um, I loved that. At the same time, there is a bureaucracy that obviously comes with working in large institutional finance corporations. Um, Goldman Sachs, Blackstone, exceptional firms, right? Some of the best out there. There is bureaucracy there. Um, and the ability of someone who is entrepreneurial and younger and has confidence that they can do their own deals or operate with a level of autonomy around deal selection and deal execution, it's hard to come by. And it's hard to really carve out that space for yourself. So I struggled with that. Um, I struggled with that at Blackstone. I struggled with that at Goldman Sachs. And so coming into business school, the one thing I knew was if I am going to work in finance again, it's going to be my finance company. Um, I would like to set the direction. And I had a very clear belief also, which is something we've instituted here, by the way, at Fifth Wall, that a really well-trained, a really ambitious, a brilliant 27-year-old, there's nothing that that person can't do that a 45-year-old can. Um, that is really a, a 
different philosophy than you see at a lot, a lot of large financial institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I always believed that in part because I was that 27-year-old. I, I, I felt like that. And so learning from that experience and even applying it now, we try to give people that are younger and more junior in the organization a lot of autonomy to form their own conviction, to form their own theses around investing, to execute their own deals, um, to, to interact with CEOs and to interact with kind of the startup ecosystem in really independent ways. Um, and it's something I wish I had um, when I was younger. And I think what we've been successful at doing here in Fifth Wall is creating that kind of environment. So we actually hire people that frankly look a lot like I did um, and probably Brad did when we were 27. Sure. Um, and we've had incredible success, partially because of two reasons. One, I think what I, th- what I said is true. Those people, when you give them a kind of long enough leash, right, where they can really go out and hunt their own deals, they will come back with something amazing if you find the right people. And two, that information reverberates through the talent ecosystem. And in venture, the reason we've been able to hire some of the best talent away from top-tier venture funds, I mean, you just look at our employees. They all come from other top-tier, well-established funds that have been around for decades. The reason they're here is because they can do more here and because they're going to rise faster here. It's not to say those other funds aren't exceptional. They're just slightly more bureaucratic. Um, And I think one of the benefits of being new and being young and being able to kind of be very flexible in your operational model is you can architecture a career progression plan for young people um, because you yourself are young that gives them visibility into, wow, like what I could be doing at age 30 is 10x what I could be doing anywhere else. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a great asset for us in recruiting. That's incredible. So that you have some ex-banking analysts running around out here? Yes. Uh, actually, everyone, everyone, I think, actually started their career in investment banking. Um, most of them also then worked in private equity, um, uh, and a lot of them worked in venture capital as well. Um, we tend to hire, you know, financial engineers. So, you know, analytical minds in the finance sphere is kind of our, our sweet spot. Um, we tend not to hire as many you know, product managers from large uh, tech companies, in part because we're highly quantitative in how we evaluate companies. We're highly structured in how we pursue deals. And it's very hard to get that without having the kind of training that great institutions like Morgan Stanley and, you know, Citigroup and Goldman Sachs provide. Um, so on the one hand, I love banking, right? It is a it gives you a perspective on the world and it gives you a training that's nearly impossible to replicate anywhere else. It's like a requisite skill set. Yes, it's kind of um, like an army boot camp kind of thing. Exactly. I, I think for the best talent, though, it's not always applied well once you have that competency in those organizations. And so, you know, naturally what you see is a lot of people pursuing jobs outside of the banking sphere yeah. once they have that skill set. And that's frankly when we usually come in to recruit is kind of with three to five years work experience. Um, and even we go to other venture funds um, for the reasons I just mentioned. Sure. And so another thing that you said at the beginning here was this hasn't been done before. This is a very differentiated investment style. And 
I think that's probably, you tell me, but is that a big value proposition for you guys? Does a company go to YC and they have something to do with real estate and they're at their demo day and you get a call because no one else is like purely focusing on real estate companies, right? I think it's twofold. Um, I think part of it is what you just said. So we're the largest venture capital fund focused on built world technology. So for any company that is in our domain, they probably know about Fifth Wall and they, they just want us for branding purposes and for our domain expertise. But there's actually something I think far more pragmatic and expedient about why they pursue us. Um, because most venture capital funds, they're generalists, right? So they're very helpful, um, but that help is largely undifferentiated. They can help you hire, they can help you set strategy, you know, they're brilliant people, they've been entrepreneurs themselves, they can relate to you. We offer that, but we also offer something very specific. We're going to make sure your company gets distribution to the largest real estate owners on earth. No one else in the venture capital ecosystem can offer that. And so it's both unique, but it's highly quantifiable. So we can say, this is how many, let's say you're, you have a technology company selling into the multifamily industry. Through our LPs and through our extended network, we have access to 25% of all of the multifamily units in the entire United States. Wow. We can make those introductions in a single day. And like that will clearly and quantifiably and directly translate into revenue for your business. Right. So part of it is just we, we have that ability to like heavily influence the outcome for a young company. Like the way I think about it is we look to invest where we have you know, asymmetric information. So vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis the collaboration that we're undertaking with our large corporate partners we know about something. We know about some value catalyst. So an adoption decision, a partnership, a commercial deal that's about to happen, or we influence it, meaning it might not be about to happen, but we put you in a place where it's very likely to happen. Um, and initially, right, that you, you, you kind of earn that credibility. And um, you've probably seen some of the recent big commercial partnerships we've announced. Like we just announced this large commercial partnership between Open Door, a large technology company in the real estate tech space, and Lennar, the largest home builder. And, you know, on the face of it, that would seem like a unlikely marriage, right, between two businesses. I mean, on the one hand, Open Door is using algorithms to programmatically price homes and then buy and sell them. It's like a high frequency trading business leveraging technology. On the other hand, Lennar is a home builder, the largest home builder in the country. They're using, you know, uh, two by fours and nails and roofing materials to literally construct houses. It doesn't seem like those two parties would interact. And but finding that nexus for collaboration is, I think, where we excel because you you have to do two things really well. And this actually speaks to talent. You have to both be able to start talk to entrepreneurs and understand their pain points and relate to them. And frankly just understand their businesses, which are young and fast-moving and fast-growing and oftentimes cash flow negative and have big financing needs. You have to be able to understand and relate to that world. And on the other hand, you have to be able to talk to large corporates and understand how large corporates think about the world. And traditionally, I would say this is, a, well, as a generalization, most venture capital funds, generalist venture capital funds, are really good at the former. They're great at talking to entrepreneurs they're not so great at talking to the large incumbents. And you know who is great at that? 
former bankers, people that have been advisors. They've, they've been third parties to these large organizations. And so finding that skill set where you can quickly kind of uh, almost like drift between those two spheres seamlessly, it's hard to find. But when you find it, it's exceptional and it's, it's really where all the value is driven from. Sure. So let's get into the advice portion of the podcast. You've had a very pedigreed career, Goldman Sachs, Blackstone, uh, Princeton, GSB. So what would be your advice for someone that doesn't have that kind of pedigree, but is that hungry 27-year-old, has the smarts, has the drive? What do you tell them to do? Um, it's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I did this in my career, but uh, I will. I will try to offer my advice. I think you know, there's always this analogy of like, try to skate to where the puck is going. Um, and I think that's probably more true now than ever before. Um, because technology is colliding with traditional industries in ways that I think no one could have anticipated right now. So if you have a passion, let's say your passion is consumer retail, or your passion is real estate, or your passion is agriculture, whatever the, the, the passion, the industry that, that excites you. I think there's an amount of work that you need to do in thinking about a 10-year career trajectory of figuring out what are the opportunities that are going to be spawned from this collision between technology, all the you know, smart cities, IoT, um, you know, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, like all of these big thematic kind of like tsunamis of innovation that are about to hit huge industries, try to predict what they are going to do in a space you love. And then either create a company or join a company that you think is well positioned to be there. Um, because you need passion, right? You, you have to love something. Um, in my case, I knew that. Yeah. I, I love real estate. You're lucky that you were able to identify that. Yeah, and I think, look, finding that is critical, right? If you don't have that passion, um, it's very hard to put in the hours and deal with the stress and the anxiety of, of being an entrepreneur or, or working for an entrepreneurial company. But once you find it, I actually think a lot of the conclusions you'd come to from that analysis are quite intuitive. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And, you know, I imagine, you know, this podcast has a lot of people that have great experience in, in finance um, and working at exceptional institutions. And that's really valuable. That's really, really valuable. It's not a commodity. It's very rare and it's very precious. And there are companies that really want that. And so the hard thing is just figuring out where do you fit in? Right. Where are you going to be able to cash in on that, on that, uh, that ambition and that drive and that passion around some space to, to change the world, right? To put your dent in, in the universe. Sure. So I guess lastly here, just kind of a follow-up to that. You went big company to small company now. A lot of people are graduating school. They're like, oh, I'm, I just want to be an entrepreneur. Like, I don't want to go do GS. I don't want to go work for a big company. Would, would you advise them that that's a sound strategy or go big and then go small? Um, I think it touches on what we just spoke about, passion. Um, if you have a passion and you're lucky enough early in your career to have identified that passion and you're resolute that that, that is your passion, then I think go do your own thing. Just go do it. Forget Just the skills and forget learning. Just go do it. Make it happen. Because nothing will trump that. Like yeah. There is no way to prime passion. Um, if you don't, and we do see this where people just want to be an entrepreneur and they're passionate about being an entrepreneur. That's not a passion. Right. Um, that is a, that is a want. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it's sometimes a very affected passion. Um, it's very obvious that the person doesn't care about the underlying industry or the underlying problem that the company they're proposing to start is solving. Because it's like, in the end, what do companies do? Companies solve problems, right? There's all sorts of problems in the world. And there's all kinds of companies and all kinds of solutions that, that will yield like great outcomes, will solve those problems. If you don't really care about that problem, if it's not something that bothers you, that perturbs you, that keeps you up at night, what's the point, right? right? You, have, you have to have that. So I think the thing that's the most deadly to a career is trying to become an entrepreneur for being an entrepreneur's sake alone. Um, I think that is a, a shallow and, and short-sighted ambition. And working at a large organization like Goldman or Blackstone or Bain or McKinsey is a great place to gestate that passion, right? You're going to get exposed to so many different industries and so many bright people. And you're going to be doing, you're going to be working on such a diversity of things every day that you're going to find your passion. Um, and the risk you run of taking the alternative path is you pick a space you're not passionate about, it fails, and you end up five years later no better off than where you started. Whereas I do think at a large organization, you'll just naturally gravitate towards what you love. Right. And maybe you'll see a problem too, something that's not being done quite right, an inefficiency that you wouldn't see on your own. That's exactly right. I think it's totally true. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brendan, this was so much fun talking with you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening today. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. In the meantime, let me know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Also, if you love the podcast, give us five stars. We appreciate it.